0: Well, I don't know about you all, but I'm never quite sure what to do with Mary. Her story sometimes baffles me. I suspect here that I'm not alone. Some religious traditions have historically made a huge fuss over Mary— She becomes everything in some moments in their story, and other religious traditions seem to skip over her in a hurry to get to the good stuff of the Gospels, perhaps they might say. Artists throughout history have had a field day imagining this woman. They've painted her, she's been stained glass, she's been sculptures... Botticelli, Mary Cassatt, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Salvador Dali, Henry Moore. Pick your artist. So many have tried to capture who this woman might have been. She's been venerated in shrines. She's been argued about for centuries. And she's also largely been perhaps overlooked or set aside as sort of a passive figure a demure, quiet woman who birthed the Son of God, but really just sort of sat by with a quiet, sly little look on her face while it was all happening. Does her story matter to us? Does what Mary experienced mean anything to us today? We're talking about interruptions, God's interruptions in our lives. And I will say there is, as we will find out, no other person in all of human history who had the sort of interruption from God that she had. Nobody else was chosen to have the trajectory of their life so changed that they were the one that brought the savior of this world to life. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of God, Mary's interruption was perhaps one of the biggest of all time. Second, perhaps only to the interruption of that baby himself, who was Jesus, our Savior. But who is Mary Who was she at that time in history? And what is so interesting about her story? I also find myself during the Christmas season both excited to return to these old stories, the treasured ones we've preached about and talked about for centuries. And then on occasion, I find myself going, oh, we've heard that one before, right? Mary, Joseph, the manger, the wise men. Yeah, we know, we know, right? Well, Mary was a woman in a different culture than ours, clearly, at a different time in history where the rules were completely different than the rules that we play by today. And the way she responded to the interruption of God in her life has so much to tell us, even though it is so dramatically removed from what it feels like to be sitting here on this night in the western suburbs of Chicago. Mary was engaged, we're told at the beginning of this story, and in Jewish culture at this time, to be engaged was not exactly like it is to be engaged for us today. Then, to be engaged was a legally binding contract of sorts. They were legally bound together, and there were legal ramifications if an engagement was broken. You know, for us, it is the wedding day, the wedding ceremony that seals the deal, so to speak, legally. And that after a husband and wife come to the altar in our culture and are married on their wedding day, that is when legal stuff comes into play. Up until then, a fiancé can just decide to peel off from the relationship and call it good, and there's no penalty for that. But at this time in history, to be engaged and to find out that one's fiancé had been unfaithful was to break that legal contract. And Mary was probably 13 to 16 years old at the time this story happened. This is the age at which young women would get married back in that culture. And most scholars agree she was probably closer to 13 or 14 than she was to 16. And so here she is, stuck in a very fiery legal situation, one at this time in history that could cost her her very life. And she's from Nazareth, this dirty, nothing town in the sticks. It was, a, it was a flyover town. It was a place you probably wouldn't even stop if you were driving across the country. There's no reason to stop there. Nothing of interest is happening there. It's a town that was impoverished, insignificant, dank, and dirty. And here is a young teenage girl who receives an epic interruption from God. And we're told in verse 28 that the angel of the Lord says this to her, "'Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you.'" And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God.'" twice." In three verses, we're told that Mary has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to be favored? I have favorite snack foods, favorite movies, favorite sweatshirts, sports teams, favorite seasons of the year. This is not the same as having God's favor and what's interesting is that Mary is about to become wildly unfavorite, unpopular in her culture. She's about to enter a massive scandal, a pregnant, unwed, teenage girl. And at first, the phrase, if we read a little bit into it, almost freaks her out a little bit if you look at it the right way. She says, Mary was greatly troubled. You know, I wonder, was, it, was she greatly troubled because suddenly there's an angel speaking to her? Yes, probably. But at the same time, those words trouble her because she knows what they mean. She knows what it means to be favored by God. To have found favor with God is like saying one has found grace with God. It is to gain acceptance or approval or blessing in the New Testament, it is the same root from which we get the word grace, which is when we receive God's favor, even though we've done absolutely nothing to deserve it. And Mary's a good Jewish woman. She knew scripture. She knew history. She was smart. She would have known the names of others who were blessed by God, who were called favored in scripture. Names like Moses. Moses. Noah, Joseph, Jesus himself is later called favored when he's about 12 years old in the temple. Samuel was called favored. In Genesis 4, we're told that God looked with favor on Abel's offering. And later in chapter 4 of Luke's narrative, we're told that when Jesus started his public ministry, he came to, quote, proclaim the year of the Lord's God extends his favor to those who have lived a righteous life. And Mary's caught off guard because she dares to wonder, is that me? Have I lived a righteous life? Am I good enough to be called favored? She wonders. It catches her unaware in many ways. I remember having a conversation a few years ago with a young woman who was getting ready to go into ministry. And she said to me, who am I? to lead anybody. And this was a woman of great faith who knew God well, whose heart was after the things of God in this world. And she said, who am I? Why in a million years would God choose me? I'm just a mess like everybody else. And my words to her were, well, that's exactly why God's going to use you. That humble heart and that humble spirit, that's the sort of spirit and humility that God puts his favor on. And God has given his favor to Mary. And he says, even though you're not married, even though you're still a virgin, you're going to birth the Savior, the Messiah. And Mary would have known exactly the Messiah that was being talked about here. And clearly she didn't know how it was going to happen and what it was going to look like once it happened. But she knew that a political revolutionary that her culture was telling her was going to come, was going to come into the world. This was the Messiah that the Jewish community was waiting for. And she asks, well, how can this be? And the Holy Spirit will come to you and you will do this. And then Mary's response is very simple. She consents. And she says this, may it be unto me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Now stop for a moment and think what it might have meant for her to say yes. I mean, this is an impossible enough situation to try to picture ourselves in any way. Let alone picturing the cost of her response. Willa Cather says, only a woman divine could know all that a woman can suffer. And Mary was about to suffer greatly if culture went according to plan. She knew that unless God intervened and did otherwise, she was about to be mocked and ridiculed by her culture. According to Deuteronomy 22, the penalty if she was convicted as an adulteress, was that she would be taken out in public and stoned to death. Her saying yes to God meant, to, meant that she opened herself up to that possibility. Culturally, according to Scott McKnight, if a suspected adulteress was actually not convicted in court, just suspected, but maintained her innocence, as Mary would have done, she would be taken to a public place, perhaps the gate to the city, Her clothing would be torn and shredded. They would let her hair down, which was the sign of a prostitute at that time in history, and she would be left there in the public to be mocked, spit on, ridiculed with the expectation that she would be made an example of what not to do. These were the legal obligations, so to speak, that most people lived into at that time, and Joseph knew he had these choices. And thankfully, with mercy and with A word from God, he backed down from these legal proceedings. But still, she knew her yes opened her up to those things. She knew her yes meant that her family would disown her. She would be impoverished. She would be an outcast. She had no idea what God was actually going to do with this child, this Savior, what her role in raising him might be. But she knew that that child would never be accepted in their community. What are the odds that she would survive this? She had to wonder that. She made a fierce, tenacious, gutsy decision to say to God, may it be to me, to say to the interruption of God in her life, do this thing you're after in my life. Have you, have I, have any of us ever felt God nudging us toward a moment. You know, I often wish that I had these sort of angel Gabriel moments where an angel would just drop in and tell me what to do, what God wants for my life. I find myself wrestling and wondering and having my sleepless nights in my moments of fear and doubt and stress when I'm trying to figure out what sort of interruption, what sort of thing God is leading me to. And have you ever had, right, a moment like that? A person whose face you cannot get out of your mind? You may not know why, but their face is etched in your brain. There's a prayer that you just keep coming back to, perhaps. Maybe there's a group of people somewhere in your community, in your home, or somewhere in this world that you just just feel nudged to listen to, to care about, to explore. Maybe there's a place you've been called to travel to, a class. You've been invited to take a conversation you just feel drawn to have and the cost of making that decision is just so significant. It's like it's a massive interruption, right? An interruption so big you might turn to say to God, really, God, really you're going to interrupt me with that? You want me to leave my career, the one that pays the bills on my nice house so that I can bring my skills to a lousy paying job in the nonprofit sector. Really, God, you want to do that? Really, God, you want me to skip a year or maybe all of college to go do relief and development work somewhere? Really, God, you want my family to downsize, to move out of our affluent community into an impoverished one so that we can start to truly understand what community and justice look like? Really, God, you want me to end. That relationship with that guy or gal, the one that's so comfortable where all my friends and all of us are connected, but doesn't bring any life or hope to anything, you really want me to end that? Because then my friendship circles get upset and my family gets upset. Really, God? Because you have no idea how it would be if you interrupted my life and took away my vices or my addictions. You have no idea how much I need them. Really, God? You have no idea how embarrassing it would be for me at work to speak truth and to call out goodness and to commend what is, condemn what is wrong. Really, God, you have no idea what it would be like for those things to interrupt our lives. Philip Yancey says that often a work of God comes with two edges, great joy and great pain. And in that matter-of-fact response, Mary embraced both. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of the personal cost. Mary allowed God to interrupt her life so that the good and the beautiful could be birthed out of the pain and hardship of her decision. What made her consent? What made her say yes? I always wish there was more of the story here. Did they banter back and forth a little bit? Did she ask any more questions than what we see here? I, surely she was terrified. She had to wonder. Joshua Mayston Neal says, I know why Mary's afraid. It's not that the angel isn't coming. It's that he's already there. Right here in this quiet space, waiting for an answer. How does it feel to know God is waiting for an answer from us? Mary was a good Jewish woman. She was smart. I happen to think she was probably brilliant. She knew exactly what the scripture said. She knew the story that they had been waiting for. She knew the story of her people, God's people, and the way God took care of his people, in particular the women in her history, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. She knew the God who led the Israelites out of slavery. She knew the God who parted the waters of the Red Sea, the God of mercy, the God of justice, and the God of hope. She knew this God. And while her situation was dire, she worshipped a God, who was anything but dire and who would give her comfort and hope even in the midst of darkness. To say yes to God's interruption is not to say yes to an easy life. It's actually often quite the opposite. And Mary's life did not get much easier after she said yes to this because she followed this man And loved her savior. And she watched her savior and her son strung up on a cross and beaten to death. For loving and being the son of God. To say yes to God is often the most challenging thing that comes into our lives. But Mary said yes because she knew that God was faithful and could be trusted. And the God of scripture would never, never, ever call us. To anything that he wasn't willing to bring us through and that it would be hard but that justice and hope and peace and mercy and salvation and joy would be the end result. And after she said yes we reach a portion of scripture where she breaks into song. You know I wondered you know did she get some sort of note from God, like go home and hang out for a couple months. I'll, I'll check on you then, you know, like what, what's the response after this scene? Right. And in Luke 46 through 55, we, we see the response. It's a famous song. It's scripture. It is sung in hymns. It's sung this time of year. And at times, to be honest, it's skipped over. Getting ready for the wise men and the rest of the story. But this is a song of strength. And it's the second time that Mary puts her very life on the line. Because what she talks about in this song is basically a revolution. This is Mary's Magnificat. A song considered so controversial that in the 80s in Guatemala, it was banned. It wasn't allowed to be sung in that country. For there was fear that those in poverty would rise up and overthrow the government at the very words of this song. The person that Mary is talking about in this song is King Herod. She's giving her glory and joy to Jesus, to God, I should say. But she's talking about the overthrow of Herod, who is the merciless, ruthless, malevolent ruler at the time. A man who had his own family members killed to achieve his end. A man who at the mere suggestion that a child was born who could rival his throne later, has all the children in his kingdom under age two murdered. Just so that there's no rival To his throne. A man who was brutal and who would do anything he could to keep his subjects in order, in poverty, pushed down and under his feet. And Mary gets news that she is going to carry the Messiah, the one to overthrow injustice once and for all. So for the second time, she puts her life on the line and sings this song. Scott McKnight says that in Mary's world, the Magnificat was then what we shall overcome might have been like for African Americans in this country in the 60s and 70s. It is a song of revolution, and this young girl is a revolutionary. So what about us, though, right? We're not revolutionaries. At least I know I'm not. And honestly, interruptions drive me bonkers, I have three children. I'm interrupted all day long. And I love them deeply, but I don't know about you, but any of you who've raised children or have been around children know how hard it is to do simple things like finish a phone call when there's a child who wants something from you. And I used to wait until they were down in the basement playing or across the street at the neighbors to just make a phone call. And with an uncanny sense of knowledge, it was like the minute I would dial the phone, they would be right there at my feet Tapping me on the leg. Mom, 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 mom. They needed something. And because I was already on the phone, I would do the mom thing. I would snap and point and go. And make all the gestures of quieting them down so I could finish this important thing. How many of us gesture this way, right? In our souls, right? We feel God nudging us to something and we're like, Mm-mm, no. mm God. We want to do this. Kind of look at him a little bit. Like, not now. I have too much to accomplish. Friends, we need to let God interrupt our lives. The greatest thing we can do is act on the movement of the Spirit in our lives. I ask you this week, go home and sit in some stillness and quiet, which is so hard to find at any time in our culture, and even more so this time. Drive home in silence if that's all you can manage. But who is on your heart What action is in your mind? What thing is in your soul that is just giving you unrest? What thing is in you that, if followed, would lead to mercy and hope and justice and joy and all the good things of God? My family loves to ski. We're quite a bit obsessed with it, I dare say, and spent the better part of our life in ski communities, on our vacations, watching My kids ski and um, watching other people try to learn how to ski, (laughs) which sounds a little bit uh, grumpy, but it's very funny sometimes to watch people learning how to ski. (laughs) And I remember when I was learning how to ski and I was with some friends and we were holding the tow rope. How many of you know what a tow rope is, right? Yeah. When you're skiing and you're learning, you're on these little tiny short hills And they're not big enough to really put a whole ski lift on, so they just put this tow rope out there, this big cable that's on a a pulley, and it just pulls people up it. And you just kind of stand there, and you grab onto this thing, and it jerks you, and you go forward, and you hope that you can get to the top so that you can kind of learn how to ski down. But a tow rope is sort of this merciless, awful thing. It's actually harder, I think, than skiing itself. And the catch with the tow rope is that you got to grab it, And hold it. And if you fall off, there's really no way you're going to get able to stand back up. Because your skis get all twisted behind you. But your your instinct, your human instinct is to hold on to this rope. And your skis get all mangled and they usually pop off. And usually what happens is the rope moves so fast through people's hands it rips their gloves. And then all the other people behind you start skiing over you. And everyone's laying there going, let go, let go. People are hollering at you, let go of the rope. And you're thinking, I cannot let go of this. This is my lifeline. This is what's going to get me to the top. Friends, when God is interrupting you, it's kind of like that. Like, let go of the rope. People are skiing over you. You're dragging your body up. Let go of the rope. Your face is bouncing along the ice. Let go. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, talks a bit about letting go. If you haven't seen the movie, there's Frodo, who's the little hobbit, who has this little ring that has the power to save the world. And he's got a special little task, which is to take the ring back to its rightful place. And it's the hardest, most awful thing he's ever done. And it looks like it's going to cost him his life. And there's a scene where he talks to Gandalf, the good wizard, who's helping him on his journey. And Frodo is lamenting how hard this journey has been, how hard he's clinging to the rope. And Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. And I wish none of this had happened. And Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. You were meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Friends, whatever you are hanging onto, whatever is hard for you to hold, whatever is dragging you up, It's yours. The interruption of God is yours. Let go of the rope and live into the interruption. And pick up whatever it is, maybe the ring or whatever it is that God has given you. Annie Dillard says, I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go. And to dangle limp from it wherever it takes you. May that be what... God brings to you today. May you find the divine interruption in your life, the interruption that Mary found is to be found in each of our lives. God has something for you to do that is good for this world. And let him interrupt your life and do it. Let go of the rope. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you bless us with divine interruptions. And Lord, if we are honest in this moment, we confess that interruptions are awful. (laughs) They make us struggle, they make us question, they make us wonder. Sometimes they hurt. Sometimes they cause disruption. But Lord, when they lead to you, they are the only place that we want to be. So Lord, help us find our way to that. Help us find peace and quiet this week. A moment to ask what it is you wanna do in our lives and let all that we are lead us to you and bring those moments to you. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen.